On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. With Progressive's Name Your Price tool, you can find options that fit your budget. Because giving you options is the right thing to do. Oh yeah, like when I hold the door for someone. Sure, it may be weird if I don't time it right, and they're a little too far away, and now they're running. And we're both asking ourselves, is it worth it to run instead of just, you know, letting them open their own door? But still, it's the right thing to do. So get options based on your needs with Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Well, thank you for doing this today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. So I tried to tell a friend about your music the other day, and all I could come up with is that you sort of do your own thing, that you, you know, you march to the beat of your own drum. And I was wondering if that's an accurate description. Uh, Yeah, definitely. Um... It's funny because I've noticed quite a few people take it, it, it can be a compliment or it can be something that people, you know, put in reviews that are, that's critical that I have so many varied styles and genres on each album. Um, but to me, I guess, it, you know, it makes sense in my head that, that, um, you know, rockabilly, soul, country, uh, blues, gospel, I feel are all part of the same pool. They're all part of the same, you know, you're painting with the same palette. Yeah. You're just choosing on some albums, you're choosing, you know, the brighter colors of the palette or the darker colors of the palette, but it's all the same palette. And they, all of those uh, genres come from the same birthplace. And um, so I feel like they're all family and they're all connected in my head. (laughs) So and and I guess for me as a you know as a fan or as a listener going to concerts, um, you know when I see an artist that I might absolutely love, but three songs in I've heard everything that they do. Right. Um, you know I might I absolutely adore them, but after three songs I'm kind of like this is all I'm going to get, and you get a little bit bored, and um, so even more so as a performer who's performing these songs every night for years on end on tour when you're away from your family and and you're missing people and you know it needs to be something that's that you're passionate about that excites you and so I feel like for me if I'm not excited then my audience sure aren't going to be excited so I like my albums to kind of run more like almost like a soundtrack you know if you listen to a Tarantino soundtrack you're getting everything from country to um, uh, really big beats to soul, like everything, it runs the gamut because it's fitting whatever emotion you're trying to convey. And that's kind of how I see my albums. That was- Is it something that comes naturally to you? And if so, what's the most natural part? Is it the rhythm or the melodies? I guess for me, I mean, having grown up in a musical family band uh, and toured from the time I was... 10 or 11 years old and my parents were both musicians from you know long before I was born so music is is so deeply ingrained in my identity whether that's a healthy thing or not <laughs> is another question but so so it's um it's just it's such an integral part of my identity and when I'm writing um I guess it's changed over the years, um, depending on your, uh, your place in life. When I was a teenager, it was like all, you know, guitar, sitting down, writing, um, having, you know, time to spare and, or waiting for inspiration to strike. Whereas now being a parent of two little boys under six, it's stolen moments. And I find that I actually, because I rarely have time to actually pick up something other than a child, <laughs> you know, like having an instrument in my arms is, uh, is very, it's a rare luxury unless I'm performing. And so I find that the way I write now is very beat and groove driven, um, you know, driving down the highway with my kids in the back, 
and my phone's on the passenger seat, like press record. I'm driving, I'm beating a rhythm on the steering wheel and I'm singing a melody. So it's very much like melody and um, rhythm grooves now. Yeah. But who knows if that'll change when they're older and, and I have time to pick up an instrument again. <laughs> so being a professional musician, what draws you in? Is it is it the sense of adventure that you get from that? I mean, is that part of it? I, that's hard to say because you know I've been I've been touring and performing from the time as I said I was a child. Um, I don't know that it's so much a sense of adventure as a way of life. Mm-hmm. Um, having grown up in a family band, I, I sometimes liken it to you know people who run a family business. And they grow up in that business and, and they just naturally take on this legacy that their parents are handing down to them, if that's where their heart is and their passion is, which a lot, sometimes it's not, but yeah. in my case it is. Um, and so you're learning the reality of like the tools of the trade. You're, you see everything. You see the business. You see the hard work. You see um, the risks the investment that you pour out that somehow sometimes have no return. So I guess for me, it's, it's very much, um, the reality of, of doing the hard yards and you wake up every day and you just keep going. But obviously the thing that fuels all that business is a passion and a love, a deep, deep, deep love for music and creating it. How much luck do you think has been involved in getting you where you are today? Uh, is there a specific instance that you can look back on and remember a lucky break or anything like that? I don't even know that my lucky break has come yet. You know, it's um, so much of this business, as I said, is hard work. And it's a, it's such a combination of, you know, I know people who are insanely talented, have an incredible work ethic, but haven't connected with the right people so much of it is connecting with other people that believe in your music as much as you do. And I'm lucky to have a team around me that, that have connected with my music um, and, and work to get it out there. But I don't know that there's any time that you can point to any artist, really. I mean, a friend of mine um, recently performed on Conan and everyone was like, this is it, this is it, he's made it now. And then, no, he's still touring and still putting out albums and still not a household name. You know, like people kind of want to pinpoint these breakthrough moments. And uh, as an artist, you absolutely have to celebrate those moments and enjoy them and, and kind of savor them while they last because they are few and far between. And so you have to celebrate your victories along the way. But... I don't know that any working professional artist looks at a moment as like, that was my, that was it. That was what, what made me big. I think it's, it's a collection of so many things that it's like aligning the stars. It's (laughs) it's a little bit crazy. It is. So you mentioned, you know, your team and the people that you work with, but I was wondering if at the end of the day and everything, it's still, you know, your intuition that you're trusting to, to follow and uh, how much your intuition plays a part in your musical pursuits. At the end of the day, you can, you can have that team around you and you can bounce ideas off of them and, and they can give you advice um, and help you and guide you. But bottom line is it comes down to your decision. And sometimes that, that's a great thing as an artist meaning I'm, I'm in the driver's seat, I'm controlling what I'm doing, but then it can also be a real heavy responsibility because there's no one else to point the finger at when things don't work or if, if an album flops, it's like, well, it all comes back to the decisions I ultimately made. Um, you know, people who kind of, uh, you can blame management or promoters or, you know, all, all of the people that are part of the team. Um, but at the end of the day, you've chosen to work with those people and you have to make it work if you want to keep continuing with them. And um, I think there's equal equal responsibility. Um, it's, it's never just one or the other. 
Well, on the creative end, you've collaborated with some people on some really cool work. Uh, your music videos, which I'm a big fan of, like Loco Mama, Lonely, Holy Moses, uh, and most recently, Stay Out of My Business. Great videos, fantastic you know, art direction, and everything's just super cool and well put together and everything. Uh, I was wondering if how much of that uh, comes out of your imagination or how much freedom you give directors to, to work on things and create their little worlds or how that works. You know, for a long time, I was self-managed artist until just recently. Um, and, you know, not being signed to a label, so being a, having creative control, I'm, I'm just used to kind of coming up with these concepts and ideas. Um, and so I'll have, you know, a basic concept like, uh, you know, for Holy Moses, for instance, I wanted, um, I'd been watching the clips of the old Tammy shows, the Teenage American forget what it stands for and it was all these performances by like the Rolling Stones and James Brown and like this insane lineup all on one stage in front of like an audience of teenagers in the 60s wow. and they put this this show like a review on and they and they filmed it and it was televised you can look it up on YouTube and um, I loved that obviously the Tammy show like and it was spelled like my name which is unusual as well because a lot of Tammy's are T-A-M-M-Y and um and that's kind of what triggered like I wanted it to be almost like a clip from the Tammy show um and so I kind of took that my brother actually directed that one he uh he Todd Nielsen um in Canada and we were doing a a quick little tour of Canada and squeezed in one day of doing this music video. And, um, but he made it come to life. So I'll just, you know, I say, this is what I'd like to do. And then he has the freedom to just, you know, create a world out of what I've kind of directed him to, um, to work with. Um, same with stay out of my business recently. Um, I just had this vision of kind of the, the whole supermarket thing and dancing down the aisles and because that's such a hub of where so much small town gossip and and um kind of those uh, those female roles those traditional roles are established like the women do the shopping and 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 so it was kind of yeah um challenging that by making this on sassy performance with like backup dancers and in just a real kind of mundane um, place. I love yeah. it. Yeah, I thought taking the grocery store theme and you know turning it into a performance space and saying, yeah, I can be a mother and a professional performer, and those themes were strong, and it was it was very cool, very well put together. Oh, thank you. Well, it was funny because the, the um, I had a, a full team of, of female uh, pro uh, producer, director, um, you know, everyone that worked on that. Um, except for I think the cameraman <laughs> and the lighting guys um, were all female, and I think that that energy comes across. And I had originally I'm I'm a huge Judy Garland fan, like since I was a kid, and her clip of Get Happy um, from the Summerstock movie, which is an iconic clip in itself, even outside the movie. She's in like that tuxedo jacket with the fedora, and she's you know they're on on a soundstage. And they're all performing in the choreography, and it's just—it's a killer clip. And I said to Annie, um, the director, you know, I want this vibe like those '50s musicals. That it was clear that it was this surreal set um, with all these bright candy colors. But um, I kind of like that it's, um, it's set in kind of that real idyllic, idyllic, um, idealist stepford wives uh perfection color candy colored world but delivering these really subversive lyrics i liked the the juxtaposition of that so switching gears a little bit i was wondering if you could tell me about the midnight lightning podcast with laura beers oh man um a girlfriend of mine who is a musician and a mother of two little ones um we kind of have this this secret Facebook group um, here in New Zealand, all these um, female musicians who are mothers and where we just can talk to each other about the challenges that we face and really open up. And it's, it's our way of having a coffee group, I guess, um, in a safe environment. But 
because we all travel and tour and some of us are in different cities, you know, you, you can come together uh, through the, the magic of technology and um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and really, um, you know, connect and talk about things when you need to talk, when you're on tour, I can talk to those girls. And one of the girls in that group, uh, a New Zealand artist, Anna Coddington, uh, messaged me one day and said, you have got to listen to this podcast. It's just, it's perfect. And it's, it's right up your alley. And she sent me the link to just the, um, the first one I listened to was the interview with Roseanne Cash and talking about the challenges of motherhood and the life of a musician and, and combining the two and successfully and the challenges there and, and, and of course, she's at a different stage. She, her children are grown. Um, but there are, I think there's like 12, 10 or 12 uh, podcasts each season. And she's just, Laura Beers has done the first season. And of course, she herself is a musician that's also a mother. And the next season is apparently going to be fathers. So it's, it's not just musicians who are mothers, it's musicians who are parents and the, the, the different challenges we face. And, and we definitely face a different set of challenges. Um, you know, mothers and fathers um, have different expectations put on them by society um, and different pressures, different judgments. So I'm really excited to hear the next season of that uh, with the fathers talking. But, um, you know, I myself being on tour have noticed a really different different attitude you know whereas I might get a lot of comments uh, judgmental comments about how can you leave your children and go on tour and uh, who's looking after them I have two musicians in my band who are both fathers who one has four children one has three and nobody n nobody ever asks them any of those questions they they're kind of viewed as you know you're bringing home the bacon you're providing for your family so it's a it's a very different um, different kind of dynamic as a mother or a father that's a musician, um, but I just I just gleaned such solidarity uh, listening to those podcasts and I just um, you know they they've been so encouraging to me to listen to as I'm going to gigs um, to hear how all these mothers with children at different ages and different circumstances. Some, some of them are single moms, some of them are in relationships with musician that also travels or one that stays home, you know, but I, the, the running thread through every podcast and every musician parent that I meet is that every parent is making the best decision for their child. And that child has different needs, different personalities, you know, for some, they may not deal well with being separated for weeks from their parents. So they go along. Others don't deal well with having their routine and their security disrupted. So they stay home with the other parent, you know, but at the end of the day, we're all making the best decisions we possibly can to take care of our kids. And you mentioned you grew up with parents that were musicians and mm -hmm. I was wondering how, you know, that affected your own life in the way that you're now having your kids, you know, grow up with a parent that's a musician and passing that kind of thing along. Uh, I think that's really amazing of you to do. Uh, but also it leads me to a question about uh, your, your mentors as musicians. I'm sure that your family, you know, the mentorship aspect of that was really crucial in your development. And I was wondering if you had any other mentors that, along the way that you could tell me about. My, my biggest mentors obviously were my parents. Uh, my father in particular, watching him juggle, um, you know, he was the booking agent, he was the tour bus driver, he was the sound tech, he, you know, he, he juggled all those roles. Um, and, and just kind of being, you know, having that, that work ethic really instilled in me um, from a young age. Uh, and, and just seeing the reality of the music business. I didn't have stars in my eyes and never kind of, you know, there was always a grounding of reality of, of what I was really getting into. Um, I guess other mentors along the way would be people that influenced um, either my, uh, my songwriting, um, 
one big, big mentor for me when I first started really getting seriously into songwriting was uh, Dennis Morgan. He was, he's a songwriter in the, in the Songwriters Hall of Fame in Nashville. He wrote massive hits um, like uh, I Knew You Were Waiting For Me by Aretha Franklin and, and George Michael or um, Smoky Mountain Rain, Ronnie Millsap. Um, I Was Country When Country Wasn't Cool, Barbara Mandrell, you know, all these from, from really classic, um, oh, Let Me Let Me Let Go by Faith Hill. So from like the old school hits right through to he's still very current. And um, he, uh, a friend of ours introduced us when I was, I guess, about 18. And um, me and my brother Jay had kind of this little booklet of songs and, and he uh, obviously saw something there and he uh, is based in Nashville and at the time we were living in Branson, Missouri. And he uh, had bought Carl Perkins tour bus, like as you know, as you do, <laughs> as a souvenir. And he drove, him and his uh, sound tech, drove from Nashville over to um, Branson and parked the, the bus outside our house, ran like a power cord inside, set up a little studio in the the, the house, and then, re, you know, the recording studio was in the bus. And <laughs> I can still remember like walking in and there were these ashtrays um, with cigarette stubs in them. And one of my, my little brothers sat next to it and he went, don't touch those cigarette stubs. Those are Carl Perkins cigarette stubs. <laughs> He had not, like, he didn't want anything touched. It was, like, all the original stuff when he bought it, right? Um, and he was um, definitely an integral part of shaping my work ethic as a songwriter. You know, he used to, he, Dennis talks and talks and talks and talks and as a, you know, tell, tells all these stories. It's just, like, he's a walking uh, history book of national songwriting. And, um, as an 18 year old, I just sat there and just listened and absorbed, absorbed, absorbed. And so over a few years, he really, um, helped me and my brother, uh, kind of establish, you know, um, that real work ethic of, you know, he used to talk about, um, you know, writers that, they, they wake up, they set their alarm, they sit down in front of a typewriter, and that same typewriter they've had for 50 years that they've written hit songs on, you know, that they're quite um, superstitious about, and write until, you know, from 6 a.m. till noon, and he said, you know, it's a discipline. It's not just something you kind of reach out of the sky, and of course, everyone has different, different ways of writing and different um, processes. Um, but he, he shared all those different processes with people he'd worked with, the way he writes and the, the way that some of the great writers write. And, and so to have someone at that age, you know, at 18 years old who had enough, I think just someone of that profile and experience to have enough of a belief in my writing and my brother's writing, um, for us, that was, that was enough just to kind of propel us forward. It, it wasn't really about having him, you know, get some big hit for us or, you know, sync some amazing song in some big movie or have an artist cover it. It was, it was an education. It was, we got more education in those writing trips to Nashville that we then did afterwards um then we could have paid for in a in a music degree you know um that was i guess i'm i've always you know we've in our in our family being raised in a musical family you learn things by experience and and um we were really lucky along the way to have people like that who believed in us and took us under their wing and saw something and and uh equipped us with knowledge and tools to, to, to become what we were going to become. It sounds like you took a lot of that knowledge of 
the past, especially, and have applied it to your own music now and made it new, which, you know, artists tend to do. Uh, I was wondering on the fashion side of things, where you get your flair from and, and how, what you attribute that to, if that's something that runs in the family as well, or if that's just all you. I guess the foundation is, you know, my mom, my mom is uh, very stylish, always has been uh, very classic style. You know, she's very much like a, a Jackie O or an Audrey Hepburn, like classic sleek. And um, that was kind of my foundation. You know, we grew up, you know, when we would perform, we'd all have to wear these, you know, she'd say, you can pick what you want to wear, but it has to be in this color scheme, you know? And so we would all be color coordinated, but we could still wear what we wanted to wear, but had to be within this like color wheel, you know? <laughs> and, uh, which, you know, we used to kind of uh, poke fun at her for that. But uh, I guess, you know, uh, visually, it was, it was another thing that was ingrained in me alongside music was that um, part of a performance, part of your image, part of the whole package is, is visual as well as sure. audible. And, uh, and mum really, you know, while our styles might be quite different, she laid that foundation of going, it actually matters that you need to go out there and, and, and put on a show that people are going to be, you know, taking in more than just what you're singing. Like it needs to be a visual feast for the eyes as well, you know? And while that feast could, is quite different flavors <laughs> and tastes to what I do now, um, uh, that, that foundation was definitely laid by my mom. And I guess I've always been drawn to performers who are larger than life, um, that, you know, from artists like Prince to, um, David Bowie to, um, uh, Grace Jones, um, Sharon Jones, you know, these are all people that make an impact before they even open their mouths. And I love that. I love when something is um, just so immediately you can, you can connect with something or be shocked by something or um, grab the attention, you know, have your attention grabbed before and it kind of sets the stage for being able to say or sing what you want to say or sing because you've got people's attention. Um, and, uh, and also for me personally, I, I mean, I love, I think the little girl in me, you know, you love playing dress ups and <laughs> it's kind of part of it. And when I, you know, put on my sequins or tease my hair into a beehive, you kind of, you, you take on this different persona. Um, you take on kind of that, that character that you're going to play on stage that it's still part, it's, it's still me, but it's a, it's, it's extra me. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been fine tuning the package. You're getting the fashion side, the music side, everything's coming together. Now you have a new album out. Sassafras. Great name. Thank you. This album's working off some really relevant, important issues from gender equality to sexual harassment, um, gossip, negative speech in the age of social media, lots of really important themes. And I'm, I'm wondering what perspective you're working from on this album. I, you know, I can remember when I was starting to write bits and pieces of it and I was on tour and my mom had come along because we were in Canada and she, she said to me, so are you have you started to write your next album yet? And I said, yeah, I think, you know, I've started to put a couple songs are starting to come out. And, and she said, so is there like a theme emerging? And, and I said, well, actually there is. Um, and I don't know if it's because I think it's a combination of things. I said, you know, whether it was becoming a parent, um, losing a parent who lost my father three years ago now. And that, totally changes your perspective and and drives home that you don't have forever on this on this planet um and seeing the legacy he passed down to me and wanting to make sure I have a legacy that I pass down to my children 
and turning 40. I think, you know, those three things are all really big milestones that really change your perspective, um, change uh, your priorities. And I said, I don't know if it's like a combination of all those things, but suddenly I just have like no tolerance for people's bullshit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, um, you know, as it, I think it is kind of a part of a, an entertainer's personality to be a people pleaser. There's, there's an element of that. Yeah. You're trying to get people to connect with you all the time and connect with your music. Um, and I've always been very much, you know, I don't like confrontation, all those things. Um, and then kind of j just this light switched on one day, like, why do I care? Why do I care about people who, you know, I obviously care about the opinions of people who love me and care about me. Um, but for people who are strangers who don't know me, don't have any love or care or concern for me, why, why is their opinion? Why does it matter to me? Why should I worry about that? And, um, I suddenly kind of went, it, it was it was almost I, I, I kind of became emboldened um, by these experiences and, and these experiences, but also the social climate. I think there's been obviously a huge groundswell, um, and and it seemed to kind of all come to fruition for me personally, my personal life, in conjunction with the social climate, kind of bang collided and. Um, and all of this stuff started to pour out of me um, onto this album. So you're living in New Zealand, right? Yes. Is that you're feeling the the social climate reverberations there as well? I mean, this is but you travel and everything is, you know, all over the world. So I'm sure you do, right? Yes, and I think I think it's something that's felt the world over, um, the social climate, the political climate. Um, you know, New Zealanders uh, have. Are, are very politically aware. Um, they were the first country in the world to give women the vote. Um, this year marks the, I believe it's the 125th anniversary. Wow. Um, which is pretty amazing. Um, and I mean, I love that we have a prime minister who is female, who is in her thirties, who is pregnant, not married, but, uh, you know, her partner is um, going to, you know, they've already discussed that she's going to run the country and, and he's going to, you know, take care of, of the baby. And, and I, I love that that progressiveness filters down into the society as well. So um, New Zealand's a good place to be right now. <laughs> so speaking of New Zealand, you co-produced Sassafras with Ben Edwards. Is that right? And he's, yes. he's New Zealand based and he works with all kinds of great New Zealander artists like Marlon Williams and Aldous Harding. How did you get connected with Ben? Oh man, it's quite funny, eh? Because, um, you know, when, when people look at all of these albums like Marlon Williams or Aldous Harding or Nadia Reed, Delaney Davidson, all of these albums and my albums that are kind of starting to make waves internationally on a world stage coming from this little tiny studio in a little tiny port town in New Zealand. And the connection is Ben Edwards for all of us. Um, and, and all of us kind of had those, you know, had these things start to happen. We, we all have worked together and, and toured together. And, and now it's, it's really exciting to see everyone kind of blossoming all over the world and, and running to, into each other on, on these international tours and, and um, remembering, you know, those days when we were all busking together in a cafe. <laughs> um, I still, I was looking at a photo the other day, which I, I love, and I think I need to get it printed and framed. It was all of us just having a quiet night. It was, uh, we were in the middle of a tour and we had a night off in Wellington, New Zealand. And in the picture, we're all sitting on chairs around this empty cafe, all just hanging out and having a jam. And it's, it's Marlon, Aldous me, Nadia Reed, um, another great New Zealand band, Eben Sparrow, if you haven't heard of them, check them out. 
Um, uh, yeah, it, it, and, and, and it's quite funny to look at that little snapshot before things started to kind of explode. But, um, but Ben Edwards is, uh, he's a good man and he's the most unassuming, humble, self-effacing person that you'll ever meet. Um, but he's uh, become a bit of a creative genius when it comes to producing here in New Zealand. Um, but he's still like all of the, you know, all of the, these international successes haven't changed him at all. He's still got his same little beautiful little studio and the dogs still run around the studio while you're recording. And, um, you know, his, his three-year-old pops in and out and, you know, it's, um, but you, you know, you stand on the deck and you overlook the beautiful New Zealand Harbor. Um, so it's uh, it's a special, magical place to record. And that's sure, the, sitting room. the sitting room. Yeah, I was going to ask the name of it. And that's in uh, Littleton, or is that how you say it? Yeah, Littleton uh, in the South Island of New Zealand. And I think being, you know, recording there, uh, first of all, being a, an artist in New Zealand, it was funny. I recently did a, um, a songwriting retreat um, where... Um, our local um, songwriting body, um, APRA, uh, arranged for a week of us. We spent a week in Neil Finn's studios, um, and he has five studios uh, called Roundhead before he was jetting off to join Fleetwood Mac <laughs> last week. <laughs> um, and they flew over three writers from Nashville, and we all collaborated every day. We had to come up with a new song in a group of four, a producer and three writers, and, and, and rotated in these five different studios, rotated writers, rotated producers every day, and came out with a new song. And um, the three Nashville writers, by the end of the week, they were like, you guys have got something so different to anywhere else. You know, you, and I, and they said, I think that the whole, you know, New Zealand being more isolated plays a big part in that. You know, we're kind of this little country at the bottom of the world that always gets left off the world maps. <laughs> it's kind of this little strip of bacon next to Australia. And, um, but because we're not, we're not directly influenced, we're not in, you know, Nashville or New York or LA, or we're not based in this musical hub where... I find that a lot of times being based in one of those, those, you know, when I was based in Nashville, you start to almost like osmosis. You begin to absorb, um, you know, what people are writing around you. What's, what's, what's the big hit right now? What do people want? What are they looking for? And you start to kind of, you're so influenced by that. Whereas being down here at the bottom of the world, creating music in these, this tiny port town, um, you uh, you write what you want to write, and you write what you feel. And, and New Zealanders, I guess, you know, they've always had a very much like this DIY attitude. Like, you know, I live on an island in the middle of the ocean. If they don't have it, I need to make it myself. <laughs> you know, and that that attitude is something that it's a thread that runs through uh, the people here. And um, and I think that's why the music that we create is. Uh, so unique and um, you know we're not we're not looking to kind of meet an agenda or a criteria uh, we create what we feel what we want and um, and somehow you know the rest of the world is connecting with it which is a beautiful thing speaking of the rest of the world you got some tour dates coming up ahead of you are you pretty excited to get out there and promote the album yeah yeah it'll be it'll be really exciting you know all of this kind of you know, the last six months or so, it's all the prep work and the recording the album and all the, um, you know, the manufacturing and the artwork and all of that kind of stuff. So it's it's all that prep work. It's like the gestation period, you know, or you're, you know, you have this baby that is, uh, <laughs> is just getting ready to come into the world and so excited for, for my baby to come into the world and, uh, and um, I can't believe it's, yeah, it's only four weeks away, four weeks yesterday in New Zealand anyway. <laughs> We're a day ahead of, of, of you guys. Um, but yeah, 
um, and, and getting out there and performing these songs. That was, that was something that uh, was really, really important to me. This album um, was because of, I've been touring so much internationally the past year or two years. Um, like I said, these are songs that you have to sing over and over and over again. Um, you know, and you better make damn sure that they're a lot of fun to sing and that you really love singing them. And so I wanted to make sure that I was writing songs that were going to be a joy and a challenge to sing every night. So this is a headliner tour, right? It is. Yeah. But you've, you've had some good opening tour spots as well. I saw that you worked a, a show for Mavis Staples. How was oh that? My- what was that it like one. to to meet her to open for her? I mean, is she one of your sheroes? Oh my God, Mavis Staples is the one. Yeah. She is like I want her to adopt me. <laughs> like, I want her to be my mom. Sorry, mom. Um, <laughs> no, I love her so much. And seriously, when I saw her, like I I'd done my opening set, and um. I was halfway through that set because you, you know, I had so, I was so nervous like weeks leading up to it because you know what it's like to meet one of your heroes. You think, Oh God, like, first of all, if I, if I don't get to meet them at all, that'll be really disappointing. But then if I do meet them and they're like having a bad day or they're tired or they don't, you know, that can like totally ruin. You don't want like this love that you have ruined <laughs> by reality. <laughs> and, um, and I kind of, you know, we went on stage and she wasn't in the building yet. So I was like, okay, I can chill. I can, you know, I don't have to be so nervous. She's not here. Like just whew, calm down, enjoy it, you know? And so I got about halfway through my set and I was singing this song and all of a sudden I heard like that, that church lady clapping coming from the wings, like that, that real signature staples, like you know, offbeat church clapping. And I kind of went, and I'm like, is it her? Cause I didn't want to look. And then I just heard, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked over and she was like doing like church lady, hallelujah hands. And she was like grooving. And I was, I may have peed myself a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, maybe see. And she stayed out for a few songs and watched, and she was just totally into it, which was amazing. And so after my set uh, at intermission, I walked backstage, and she was she was in her dressing room, and and um, I I went. She was standing in the doorway and called me over, so I went in, and she was like, "Baby, your voice, your voice." It's amazing. It just drew me, it drew me out to the stage. <laughs> and she was like everything I could have hoped for. She was like the auntie that you wish you had. You know, she gave me big hugs. She's about this high. She's so little and cute. And she's just, she radiates joy. And, um, but she's, I found like there's this regalness about her as well. You know, she's, She's been such a voice for the civil rights movement. She worked with Dr. Martin Luther King. She traveled with him. Like her, she's, she is walking history, you know? Um, And she's still fighting that fight, sadly, decades and decades later. Um, And it's an amazing, powerful thing to be in the presence of somebody like that. So yeah, after, opening for her that was one year ago this month that I opened for her and um I considered retiring because (laughs) I'm like it's not gonna get better than this what's the point (laughs) yeah I love me Mavis I love me some Mavis that's great yeah her music's amazing I really love what she did with her uh what was it the living on a high note album where she collaborated with Justin Vernon, Benjamin Booker, all these really cool artists. Uh, have you ever thought of doing something like that? Oh, God. <laughs> I was kind of like, when that album came out, I'm like, pick me, pick me. <laughs> um, oh, you mean for me as an artist to collaborate with, with yeah. others? 
I, I think, I mean, I would, I've definitely done a lot of col collaboration in, in um, my career, um, you know, whether it be with uh, family members or with Marlon and uh, Marlon Williams, Delaney Davidson, you know, I have collaborated a lot, but, um, you know, in, in the instance with Mavis, I think you need to get to a, a, a you know, a point in your career where you, uh, you know, have that kind of respect and um, profile and where people like that would want to work with you. You know, that would, that would be something pretty amazing to be able to draw on that. And it would be wonderful to have one of those careers that has spanned decades and decades and decades and get to a point where you are now, you know, the influence of the next generation of music that all want to do a duet with you on an album, you know, as, as in the case of Mavis Staples. So, um, I would, I would love to do that. <laughs> I've got some work to do though. <laughs> you never know. Maybe she'll uh, see this and you guys could set something up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you can hook us up. Hey, I got you. I thought this was like a musician dating service. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> this was going you, well. Like, where you hook up duets and uh, yeah. <laughs> That's an idea. Let me write that one down. Are there any emerging artists out there that you're listening to right now that you think the world should be turned on to? Oh man. Um, there are, I guess I, you wouldn't really call them emerging but they are artists that I feel should be, have more recognition than they do. That works um, too. Yeah, artists like um, St. Paul and the Broken Bones are um, one of my favorites. They, um, they performed a few years ago here in Auckland at Auckland City Limits, um, and I was performing as well, and uh, a, a friend of mine, a guy in my band, actually, one of my musicians said, oh, you've got to see this band. And I'm like, well, okay. And we, we kind of tootled along over to the stage. And I was absolutely, like, his voice, his stage presence. I was so inspired by him as a performer and just his over-the-top outlandishness as a performer it was just it, he grabbed me by the neck and just shook me the whole set you know yeah. um and I, yeah just incredible um i'm trying to think of the other artists that um local artists uh evan sparrow or another band that i feel you know they're, they're this little band um from New Zealand and uh, led by Ebony Lamb. I mean, the name Ebony Lamb. Could you actually even make that up? It's like a musician's dream to be born with that name. And um, they're very kind of uh, alt country, um, noir kind of cowboy junkies meets Lucinda Williams meets Gillian Welsh. And um, I. Yeah, I love their stuff. I've been listening to their new album, Seeing Things, is, is what it's called, on repeat. So um, that's that's an artist you definitely need to check out. And um, and my collaborator in crime on many of my past albums, Delaney Davidson, is another uh, great artist that I feel needs some more recognition out there. Um, he's uh, kind of this Waitsian... Um, uh, kind of the, the sensibilities of, of Tom Waits and Nick Cave, but with um, Hank Williams thrown in, you know? So, uh, yeah, a, a lot of great music that needs to be heard, for sure. Well, Tammy, we're out of time. That's all I have for now. I hope you enjoyed well, chatting. It's been great talking with you. You too. Thank you for letting me ramble. <laughs> Not at all. It's been it's been great. I wish you all the best with Sassafras and your upcoming tours and everything and look forward to all the success that you're going to have. It's going to be good. Oh, thank you. And thank you guys at Diddy TV for always supporting my music. It's much appreciated. Absolutely. We'll keep on doing it. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits, perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, presented by Capital One.
Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and 10 times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. If you're looking to move out of your parents' place, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive, which is good because your little brother has gotten really territorial. You're blood-related. You'd think it would be fine to share food in the fridge. I mean, who writes their name on every individually wrapped slice of cheese, Tyler? Still, you've got to admire the commitment. So bundle your renter's and car insurance with Progressive and use the savings to help you move out and have all the cheese you want. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.